Well, we uh, started this church 16 years ago now with half a dozen people and just a bunch of promises from God encouraging us to believe for something bigger than half a dozen people. Uh, From the very beginning, uh, God spoke to us about believing for a church that would impact uh, this whole city. He told us he had many people for us uh, here in Birmingham. Uh, He told us to believe for the day when Jesus uh, was the most talked about person uh, in this city. Uh, And he also encouraged us to believe for the day where what he did here in Birmingham would be like a national exhibition centre for the display of his glory. And really, it's those promises that have prevented us from ever settling for what we have achieved. And that is why today uh, we are launching our third site of Church Central uh, up in the north of the city, uh, up in Erdington and reaching out into the surrounding areas. We uh, launched this site here uh, two and a half years ago and looking around, I guess there are probably a whole bunch of people here today who weren't part of the church when we started here. Really, that's why we're doing this. We're uh, looking to go to where people are and make it a whole lot easier for people to access the church, for people to hear the good news of what we believe. Uh, And we're committed to launching new sites across this city uh, because God's given us some huge promises for the city. Uh, And so we uh, keep on in faith. Uh, And I want you to, even today, uh, as you're kind of sitting here, uh, to feel an ownership and a part of what we're doing. So you might never uh, go further north than the M6 and kind of travel up to Erdington and, and visit the site up there. But I want you to feel that what we are doing here is part of that as well. And so I just want to take this opportunity now, first of all, to thank you. I want to thank you for your commitment uh, that's enabled this site to get established and for us now to be thinking and planning and actually, uh, in reality, launching uh, a third site. I want to thank you for your commitment just in serving. I know so many of you are on rotors in kids' work and hosting and refreshments. Uh, I want to especially thank uh, all the musicians uh, amongst us, just recognising that uh, that the workload increases and increases to enable us to put on three different meetings on a Sunday. just want you to know that we greatly appreciate all your hard work. And I want to appeal to all of you uh, to feel this sense of ownership in terms of what we're doing uh, and to be in faith for the advance of God's purposes here in this city. And so before we uh, get into God's Word together, I want to pray. In uh, 20 minutes' time, our north site uh, starts. Um, uh, so uh, I won't have finished by then. Uh, so whilst I'm preaching, they'll be up there starting. Uh, and then at half past 11, our south site uh, will start meeting as well. Can we pray that God is with us in each of our sites today in power? Uh, all kinds of logistical things like getting from place to place. Got to preach three sermons uh, in the best part of three hours in three different locations today. So all kinds of things that could go wrong. We we need God. And so can we just pray together before we do anything else? Father, I want to thank you for the journey that we've been on as a church. I want to thank you for your faithfulness towards us, your favour. We thank you that uh, you're the God of the miraculous and in our own lives speak of that, testify to that. But I want to pray that this church more and more would trumpet the message uh, that you are powerful 
faithful, uh, that you are faithful, that you are true to your promises. God, would you come among us today uh, powerfully? I want to pray up in Erdington uh, for just a cracking morning. I want to ask you for, uh, for, for the worship to fly. Uh, I want to pray for visitors to be there even this first Sunday. I want to pray that I thank you that they've already seen people saved and added to that group even before they've started meeting. I want to pray for more this next term. Uh, I want to pray for our South Site as well. God, as they gather more students through this term, would you keep growing us? Would you keep blessing us? Would you provide all that we need so we might give more glory to you? Because that's what we want. Amen. Okay, last week we started this brand new series entitled, I Believe in God, But. Basic thinking behind this series is there tends to be a gap in all of our lives between what we say we believe and our day-to-day practice. And so really over the course of the next couple of months, I'm going to try and close that gap a bit so that we actually live more and more in the good of what we say we believe. What I want to touch on this morning is the whole subject of prayer. Because I think if we're honest, a whole lot of us believe in God, but we just don't talk to Him very much. We might claim that we believe that prayer works, but maybe our actions say otherwise. There are two things, really, I've got to say up front. First of all, what we'd normally do in the church here is uh, open up a passage of Scripture, read it, and then spend the next 30, 40, sometimes even 50 minutes unpacking it and explaining its relevance for our lives today. We're going to do things very much the other way around today. We're starting with the preaching, then worshipping. Also, in the terms of this message, uh, we're going to come to the main passage towards the end of this talk, because I want to spend the majority of our time setting the scene. I want to give you a a full introduction. I want to prepare you to hear the full force and impact of the passage of Scripture uh, right at the end. So don't be thrown by that. Uh, The Bible's going to be here very clearly. It's just going to be the other way around. The other thing I need to say up front is when it comes to teaching on prayer, it, it always feels ever so slightly awkward for me. And it's not that the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about prayer. It's just that I guess we already know we should pray more. And a lot of us feel guilty that we don't. Am I right? Yeah, a few nodding heads there. So it becomes difficult to teach on this subject because I don't want to burden you with even more guilt. Like the Bible says we should pray and we should all be praying more. It's like the condemnation and the guilt just falls heavily on us. I don't want to get up here and tell you what you already know. I mean, it's not like I could teach on prayer in such a way that anyone in this room would go, wow, do you mean we're actually supposed to pray to God? I mean, that's not news for most of us. We know already. So let me tell you what I'm hoping to do. A bit like our recent series on reading the Bible, I'm hoping I can move us a little bit away from discipline and into delight. Because I think the very best motivator out there isn't discipline, it's delight. Think about it. If you love something, if you love doing something, isn't it true? You're much more likely to do it and actually build things into your life that enable and empower it. But if you don't delight in it in the first place, then regardless of what kind of discipline you put in place, eventually you're going to fail and give up. So 
if discipline is your main driving force, you will fizzle out in time. But if you're driven primarily by a sense of delight and desire, you will do what you delight and you'll do what you desire even when it's hard. Discipline, of course, does still need to be there. But the fuel in discipline has got to be delight or you're simply not going to make it. So this morning, I want to try and remove a major obstacle of delighting in God in the hope that our discipline in prayer will grow and grow and grow. Here's what I contend. For many of us, the main issue in our prayerlessness is we have a problem believing and grasping that God likes us, enjoys us, loves us, and delights in us. Which is strange, because I think if I was to sit down with you after the meeting and ask you, well, do you believe that God loves us? I think you go, yeah, of course I do. Of course I believe he loves us. But if I could just drill down a bit, and I could start to ask not about us, but about you. If I could start to ask about you, not you years from now, but you today, you right here, right now. If I could sit down and ask you, do you think God delights in you? Do you think today God is rejoicing over you? Do you think right now with all the things that are going on in your life, God loves you? Do you think he enjoys you right now? I think if you were honest that one would be harder for you to answer. I guess there are multiple reasons for our prayerlessness, but I think the predominant one is we just can't imagine that God delights in us, that he rejoices in us, that he does deep down love us, he's for us. It's just hard, and I'll tell you why it's hard. If you have ever betrayed someone, if you've ever lied to someone and they found out Or have you ever fallen short of someone's expectation of you? What's your response? Tends to be avoidance. I think our stock response to all of that is avoidance. If I fail you, if I let you down in some way, if it becomes public between you and me that I have wronged you, then my natural reaction is to want to avoid you. If you're going to the west side, I'm suddenly joining the north side. If you're going to this life group, I'm not going to it anymore. This is the game we play. We we play a game of avoidance because we feel shame. We feel embarrassment. It's just awkward. I I, I don't know how they're going to respond to me. And so I'm just going to avoid them. Can I tell you, my great fear for all of us, my great fear is that we would love the idea of Jesus, but not really love Jesus. We'd perhaps love the idea of grace. We'd love the idea of worship. We'd love the idea of intimacy with God, but we wouldn't actually experience any of that. Now, if you took that way of thinking, that grid, and you put it on any other area of your life, you'd see just how daft this is. For example, if you loved the idea of food, and I said to you, well, after the meeting today, I want to take you out to to this new restaurant that's open down the road. It's a great restaurant. And you were like, well, I don't really ever eat 
Uh, I, I thought you said you were a bit of a foodie. Well, well no, no, I, I love the idea of food. I, I love the idea of tastes and flavours fusing together and form this kind of wonderful culinary collision. But, but you don't eat? No, no not really. I, I just drink protein shakes. I mean, this would be that kind of foolishness. Or if you said, I love the idea of relationships and intimacy. Well, are you in any close relationships? No, not really. I just read about them. I really study them. I could tell you a lot about them. I think about them all the time. I wish I had them, but they're just a bit too risky. I mean, I could get into a close relationship that went wrong. That would be crazy. But I think this is where some of us are when it comes to prayer. We love knowing about Jesus, but we don't really know Jesus. We avoid him because perhaps we feel unworthy. We feel ashamed. We feel awkward around him. We, we love the thought of his love, but we don't really experience his love because we doubt that it applies to us. We, we doubt that knowing all that he knows about us, he could really genuinely still love us. And it's a miserable exchange. Jesus hasn't come so you'd religiously just keep doing what he says at the expense of walking with him and knowing him, and experiencing his love, and being assured of his absolute phenomenal delight in you. Let me try and illustrate it like this. I've got two sons. Most of the time, we have a great relationship. But here's what I know. I'll be straight. There has never been a day yet when they've succeeded in being completely perfect. I cannot remember a day when they haven't done something or said something that's broken the tranquil, idyllic atmosphere that we still naively dream of one day having in our home. But here's what I know. My kids, most of the time, still want to hang around. They still want to talk, still want to play, still want to leap on top of me, even in the midst of all of their shortcomings, because they can feel and they know that I delight, I love, I enjoy them, despite all of their shortcomings. They can feel that, unless you've put me on some kind of pedestal, by no means am I the perfect father. Do I get grumpy? Yes. Sometimes, do I just wish that I could be left alone and close my eyes just for a second? Yes, but can my kids, through all of that, feel overall that I have a legitimate and honest delight in them? Absolutely. And so they still want to keep coming, and they want to keep talking, and boy, can they talk. They, they want to play, they, they want to be around, because they can feel the delight. And really, that is the place I want to try and get you to in your relationship with God in relationship with your Heavenly Father. I want to try and remove this question from the equation once and for all. Does God really love me? Does He really want me to spend time with Him? Just so you know, the text that we're finally going to get to this morning is Luke chapter 18. Feel free to find it, put your finger in the page, we will get there eventually. It's just an absurd passage, but before we get there, I want to work with you to try and demolish this way of thinking that God doesn't delight in me, God doesn't love me, 
God just wants me to do what He says and stay out of His way. First of all, I want to start with the obvious one, the obvious reason. He saved you. He saved you. Now, to feel the full force of this truth that I guess we're pretty much all familiar with, it's really important that you drill down and understand how salvation occurs. Because if salvation happens, if salvation works, if salvation occurs because you did it, then really it has no implications on God's affection, love or desire for you. It it puts all the weight of the exchange on you and your initiative and what you have done. Yeah, Jesus died, but you're the one who put your faith in Jesus. Now, that would be a great idea if it wasn't for what the Bible says. The Bible couldn't really be any clearer on this. If you are a believer in Christ, if you've been given a a new spiritual heart, if, if you've been born again, God did that. You didn't do it. God did it. And for those who think, no, 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 you're wrong. I I remember getting up out of my seat at the end of the meeting and responding. I I remember going to the front of the meeting. I, I, I remember praying the prayer. I'd argue that nonetheless, it was God who gave you the faith to do all of that. The act of salvation occurred already, prompting you to get up out of your chair and respond. It was God who moved you to respond. I mean, the Bible describes our pre-Christian condition as being spiritually dead, and something that is dead cannot choose life. It needs to be resurrected by someone else, and that's what God did. God saved you. He took the initiative in saving you. What makes it even more astonishing is when all of this took place. You can stay in Luke 18 if you're there, but Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us that he, that's God, chose us in him, him being Jesus, his son, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I want to try and unpack this for you. God has always been and will always be all-knowing. He cannot be surprised. He has absolutely no blind spot. So even before he created the world, God knew you. Not just us, but you. And if you are a Christian here today, before the world was created, he decided, knowing you, knowing everything about your life in advance, he decided nonetheless he was going to save you. Romans 8, 29, just another great text that talks about just how sick God's love is for you. It says, for those God foreknew, that could be translated for love, those God foreloved, those God foreknew, he also predestined. Now again, don't worry about that word, it just means predetermined. Those whom he foreloved, he predestined to what? To be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So, before the beginning of time, God had already made up his mind. God had already decided that in his foreloving, predetermining plan, he was going to rescue you and conform you, change you, make you into the likeness of Jesus. Now, what makes this so very profound is that it's all taking place in the full and complete knowledge of every single act of rebellion, every wayward thought, every God-belittling moment of your life. 
God sees and knows everything about our lives in advance. Every little sordid detail and still he says, no, I love him. No, I love her. No, I'm still going to rescue them. I'm I'm going to save them. I'm going to make a way for them to know me. So God himself comes to earth as a human being, empties himself of all of his glory, comes like a servant to seek and save those who he wants to adopt into his family. Look at me. He didn't have to do that. I mean, how many people do you know who are completely indifferent to the things of God? I mean, it's not even on their radar. They they couldn't care less. They, They have no idea of their need for him, no desire to know any different. They're completely unaware of whether or not they're living fulfilled lives. Just kind of day in, day out, checking their Facebook, doing their jobs, trying to be good people, and all the time completely oblivious to the wonder of knowing and experiencing God's phenomenal delight in them. But not you. You know. Even in the midst of your frustration of knowing how God wants you to live and feeling like you're constantly falling short, you're not there yet, you know and it was God who did that. It was God who turned on your heart to that. He turned on your mind to this truth, to this reality. Ultimately, the evidence of God's delight in you is seen most vividly, most clearly, most perfectly in the saving work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Now, I know some of you, even now, are thinking, well, yeah, I mean, I get all of that, but I'm such a mess. I mean, I just feel awkward being here because I know who I am. I'm looking around at all the other perfect people and I'm just doubting that the other people in this room have the kind of marriage that I have, are kind of closely guarding the kind of secrets that I am, that the kind of issues that I have going on in my life right now. I'm glad you're thinking that because it leads me to the last text that I want us to take in before we finally, eventually get to Luke 18. It's just a well-known passage for those of you of any kind of church background. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus is talking. I want you just to consider his invitation to you here. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Some of you might have versions that say, Come to me, all who labor. Weary and labor kind of the same word, kind of the same idea. Labor has the idea that you work so hard that you're exhausted. Weariness is pretty much the exhaustion that comes from that labor. It's the same idea, it's the same word. Now, this is a pretty unheard of invitation. Jesus is saying, hey, if you're exhausted, if you struggle with anything, I don't know, bitterness, loneliness, anger, lust, if you have no people skills, if you can't figure everything out, Jesus is saying, come here, that this applies to you, come to me. What an invitation. 
I mean, what we tend to do in our culture, more often than not, is say, look, if you struggle to get on with other people, you go to some sort of a group, figure out how to interact on a level that's acceptable to me, then I'll consider spending time with you. Or maybe you're always complaining. You're always pointing out what's wrong. It just feels negative hanging around you. Why don't you cut all of that out and then we can be friends? That is not what Jesus is doing here. Do you hear him? He's saying, no, come to me. Are you broken? Are you messed up? Are you weary? Are you burdened? Get over here. And if we come to him, it's like this phenomenal exchange takes place. You come to me with your weariness. Come to me with your labor. Give me all the things you struggle with, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. The invitation isn't start doing what's right and then you'll be worthy enough to come to me. The invitation is come to me because you're unworthy. Come to me because you're not doing what's right. The solution to what weighs heavy on us and what exhausts us and what we struggle with isn't us trying harder at overcoming those things, but rather the solution is us, first of all, coming to Jesus and walking with him, and being in a relationship with him that overpowers once and for all our stubborn determination to just keep on struggling on our own, in our own strength. I think it's really important for you to dial in and understand that when it comes to sin, or loneliness, or despair, The way we get out from underneath those things isn't to work really hard to not be struggling with those things anymore, but rather to use all of our leftover energy to chase after, to know, and to see Jesus as altogether more lovely than all of those other things. Because as Jesus becomes more lovely, these things lose their power. As Jesus becomes more spectacular, isn't it natural we would turn to him? I mean, why would I choose this when I can have Jesus? Why would I want that joy when I can have his joy? You see, it becomes a delight issue. I don't know, maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I just don't know if church is for me because of this and this and this and this. Jesus is saying to you right now, you're all messed up. Oh, it's for you all right. You you don't feel like you've got it all together. Come on, come here. Come to me. Give it to me and I will give you rest. Give it to me and I will give you peace. All of which is a great introduction to the absurdity of Luke 18. I want us to pick it up in verse 1. And Jesus told his disciples a parable, a story, to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Really, Luke couldn't be a whole lot clearer about why Jesus is telling this story. Do you get the hint? It's to show them that they should always pray and not give up. That's the point. That's the purpose of this story. Verse 2, Jesus said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town. Now, I want to pause there and contrast those two characters. First of all, a widow back in the first century 
was viewed by most people as beneath a second-class citizen. If the husband doesn't die and leave a whole lot of resources for his widow, or if the eldest son doesn't like his mum, then she's in a lot of trouble. But that's why you have so many biblical commands to take care of widows in their distress. It is a legitimate distress. You also need to bear in mind that a woman's word wasn't even admissible in a court of law. So you have a woman who is a widow engaging with a judge who we're told has no care for people and no fear of God. Verse 3, And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary, against my enemy. For some time, the judge refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming." And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's like God is giving an invitation to us. God is giving an invitation to his children here that no father on earth would ever give their children in their right mind. He's saying, please pester me. Please bother me. Please keep on nagging and nagging and nagging. Don't quit asking. Don't quit coming. I I don't want you confusing me, Jesus is saying, with this unrighteous judge. If he can be pestered into doing something and yet... I delight in you and you are my children, why would you think twice about continually coming before me? Any dad here ever said anything remotely like that to their kids? I know I haven't answered you yet, but please keep nagging me. Just bombard me day and night. Wake me up in the middle of the night. Keep nagging. Never stop. Don't we as dads go the opposite way? If you ask me one more time, there's trouble. Isn't that how we respond? That's not the way Jesus is trying to get our minds around God's delight in us. He's like, you are God's chosen ones. Why would God, after choosing you, after going to all the trouble of saving you, after rescuing you, why would God then want to turn you away when you come to him? So come to me. It's that invitation, once again, pester me, bother me, nag me, never let up, keep on asking. God's saying, think about it, if that works on an unrighteous, disrespectful, pagan judge, how will it play out with me, who delights in you so much? One other thing here, we need to talk about it because it is real life. Jesus says, he tells the parable for two reasons. He tells the parable so we know we should always pray. I hope you're getting that message. He also says we should pray and not give up. We should pray and not lose heart. I guess most of us would have a story to tell where we've prayed and we cried out to God. There's this thing we really wanted and it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't a selfish thing. It wasn't, please 
to God, let my team win this afternoon. It wasn't that kind of a thing. It looked like it was tied into things that God would really want. We've, we've prayed for a family member. We've prayed for salvation for a close friend. We've, we've prayed for a sick loved one. We've cried out and asked God to work. And it seemed like our prayers haven't been answered. It, it's felt like he just hasn't been listening to us. And so we have a tendency, don't we, to give up and lose heart. It's like we're confused. Maybe even we feel betrayed by God. I think the reason Jesus ends by asking this question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I think he asked that question is because we're being led in on some really deep truths here. At the end of the day, we are simply way too ignorant to understand the breadth and the depth of God's will. We just don't have enough information at our disposal. And so, as dearly loved children of God, we're simply called to trust his sovereignty. He's still in control. He's still in charge. And he's still all-powerful. Now, at the end of the day, can I unpack for you why certain things happen and certain things don't? No. I'll tell you, I prayed... I've fasted, I've pleaded with God for the lives of certain people who were sick and they still died. And then other times I've pleaded with God for others and he's healed them outright. Did I pray harder for one than the other? No. Did I want one more than I wanted the other? Not that I can think of. Listen, there is a mystery to prayer that we're just going to have to live with, just going to have to accept. Is God sovereign? Yes, over every cell in the universe, over every single atom that exists. He is sovereign. So why pray then? Because God has ordained to accomplish His will through the prayers of His children. So we join God in the work of God by asking God for what God has asked us to ask of Him. You with me? We come, and we come boldly. We approach the throne of grace confidently. Why? Because we know we're loved. We're convinced we're delighted in. We believe we're his children. We know we're his chosen ones. And he's commanded us to bother him, to keep on asking, to keep pestering, to keep pressing in and pleading. And then we're to trust him. Trust that he is still at work even when we can't see all the evidence. Trust that he is still accomplishing things for our joy and his glory that go way beyond our comprehension. You know, my desire for you, my desire for me, my desire for us as a church is that understanding the delight that God has in us based and built on Jesus Christ would lead us to boldly approach him. That we'd be a people marked, characterized by our fervency in prayer and our absolute trust of God. When people ask the question, well, what's Church Central like? The people would say of us, I'll tell you what, they clearly grasp that God delights in them and it's obvious that they delight in him too. And man, they pray. It's crazy how much they pray. Let that be the kind of people we are. And so as I draw to a close, 
I want to give you an opportunity just to put this into practice. I want to give you an opportunity to start this conversation with God, to start praying. Maybe it would help you to close your eyes to block out distractions. If you know that closing your eyes will just lead to sleep, then please don't do that. (laughs) I want to give you an opportunity now to pray. For some of us, the thing we need to pray about right now is reality is that we don't really delight in God have a hard time believing he loves us that he really delights in us that's you why don't you just spend a minute or two asking the holy spirit to help you grasp help you feel the reality of his love for you the reality of his delight in you that seems so clearly demonstrated so clearly in the cross might impact your life and change your life Maybe others of you, you know you're walking in ongoing, unconfessed, secret sin. You haven't confessed to God your rebellion against him and it's led to this avoidance of him. Maybe you need to take this moment to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to ask God to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Maybe You've just refused to accept, refused to believe that he could forgive you. That's you. Why don't you ask him to help you live in the good of Christ's work on the cross? To know that it's sufficient to cover all your sins. To present you worthy before him. No awkwardness. Or maybe like, I guess, so many of us, you're dissatisfied in your relationship with Jesus right now. I'll tell you that that's something to really cry out to him about. We just take the time to ask him to increase your affection for him. Ask him even today, right now, to increase your delight in him. Why don't you ask him?